This morning is March 26, 2006. Our message this morning is going to be inventory. Inventory. And in parentheses next to it, you might write Paul Teal. He's going to be a central character in the message this morning. Paul Teal. Paul Teal. P-A-U-L-T-I-E-L in the NIV. Paul Teal. Now, don't get out your concordances and look that up yet. I picked him on purpose. I didn't think many of you would know who he was. Not that I don't trust you all to be Bible scholars, but... Judah's going to read us the scripture. I like to do this on uh, Sunday mornings. As soon as your children are old enough to stand up here and read, we want them to do that. We'll rotate them. Okay? So you're going to read that fifth verse there. Read it as loud as you can. He who gathers crops in summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. Very good, baby. He who sleeps during the harvest is a disgraceful son. Saints, a bloody price was paid for us. And we have been ushered into an awesome new and living way. We cannot sleep while the harvest is going on. That's a disgrace. A wise son works when it's harvest time. Jesus told us to open our eyes and look around us because the harvest was ripe. That means your life needs to be an example to the people that are around you. You need to be ready to, ask, to answer questions when they ask so that they'll know the reason that you have hope. And more and more and more, your life needs to be centrifugal. More than focused on you, it needs to spin outward from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth because what God gave you was not supposed to be contained in you. It's supposed to spill into everybody's lives around you. If your life has been self-centered, if it's been focused on you and your home, you need to change that. Jesus wants the exact opposite. That means we're going to interact with each other. We're going to interact with neighbors. We're going to interact with people around us all of the time rubbing shoulders with anybody that God brings across our path so that what we've been given they have a chance to see. That's what it's about. That's working in the harvest. Now, this morning's message, of course, is inventory. We're going to pick up in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel and the 14th chapter. Is that all right with you all? Now, you all can talk to me this morning. I'll get my feelings hurt, cry, and run out of here if you don't. 14. kind of neat to be in a new place, huh? I'm looking forward to next Sunday. Everything will actually be done. Not everything's painted. Not everything's just right yet, but it sure is a good start. And uh, I think the Lord's going to bless this. We've got room for a few more seats in here. Hmm? How about that? Okay, in 1 Samuel 14, verse 40-something, 49, Saul's family. By the way, Saul in uh, Hebrew is Shaul. Shaul's sons were Jonathan, Ishvi, Malkishua, and Malkishua. The name of his older daughter was Meribah, and that of his younger daughter was Michael. It's interesting. Saul had two daughters, an older and a younger. The older's name was I really said Meribah. It's just hard for me to say. It's Merib. Meribah is bitterness, and that's a different place in the Bible. It's Merib. The older daughter is Merib. Her name means increase. Isn't that interesting? You ever met people 
that they just can't help it. Their lives are increasing all of the time. I mean, you put them on a job at $8 an hour and you don't know what happened, but the next day they manage to squeak out 14 and then a few more weeks goes by and they're running the whole job. Their lives just increase everywhere. That's a sign of the blessing of God. can be. Not always. Wealth can be a snare for wicked. But in this scenario, increase, I want you to think of natural blessing. Okay? Merib is natural blessing. Well, Saul had another daughter. The older daughter was Merib. Somebody who gets increase and natural blessing. Right? What's the younger daughter's name? Michael. You know what Michael means? David, you know what Michael means. You've got a son named Michael. This is a little different spelling, but it's the same word. Michael means he or the one who is like God. So Saul had two daughters, one that was increase and one who was like God. Okay? Let's turn from there to 1 Samuel 17. We're going to read to you a little bit about these daughters. I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 18. Y'all forgive me if I'm a little hoarse. We've had a bit of a late night. So... 1 Samuel 18, starting in verse 17. David, as a price for killing Goliath, as a reward, do you remember he asked, what will be done to the man who does something about this when, the, when all of Israel was hiding? Well, one of the things that was going to be done for him was he was supposed to get the king's daughter in marriage. Isn't that interesting? Well, starting in verse 17 of chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, it says, Saul said to David, here is my older daughter, Meribah. I'm sorry, Merib. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. Saul has a motive. And the motive in allowing David to marry the older daughter is that the price is he's got to be in warfare with the Philistines. Saul has seen the anointing on David's life and he's jealous already. He's already plotting a way to get David killed. But he doesn't want to do it. He didn't want David's blood on his hands. Later he changes his mind, throws a spear at him. What was the price for the daughter who was naturally blessed and would give an increase everywhere? Bitter warfare with the enemies of God. That's the price. But David said to Saul, Who am I and what is my family? or my father's clan in Israel, that I should become the king's son-in-law. That's humility, isn't it? So when the time came for Merib, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Meholah. Now Saul's daughter Michael was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. Before we get there, the older daughter, the one naturally blessed, David was nobody in Israel. I mean, he had done great things. He was anointed to be a king, right? Done great things. He went out and killed a giant nobody else would kill. He knocked down the enemy that nobody else could defeat. But he was worried that in the eyes of Israel, he wouldn't be accepted yet. Who is he? His name's not great yet. An older daughter, naturally blessed, that didn't receive the king with love. But there's a second daughter whose name means he who is like God. And she was in love with David. Isn't that interesting? If that's not clicking with you yet, I'll make sure it does here in a minute. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought. 
so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, Now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, Speak to David privately and say, Look, the king is pleased with you, and his attendants all like you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I am only a poor man and little known. Real humility, huh? Almost like he doesn't think equality with this king is something to be grasped. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, The king wants no other price for the bride than 100 Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. There was an older daughter who really didn't want the king or really want David, the new and rising king, naturally blessed in everything that she did, but he was nobody in her eyes. There was a second daughter who was destined to become like God. She loved David. She was drawn to him because she could see who he was. Didn't need to be anything in Israel for her. She was just happy he was interested in her and she was interested in him. Sounds a little bit like the Hebrews and the Gentiles, doesn't it? really does. Jesus was nobody impressive to most of Israel. That was the problem. He did the works of God. He did great things, but he was not what they were looking for. He wasn't exactly king material. But to you and I, who were not next in line, we were not the oldest daughter supposed to be married first, not the one destined to leave the father's household first, not the one destined to have all of the glory that goes with that. We were just dogs. And so when the king showed some attention to us, we were excited, weren't we? And we loved King Jesus. Now Israel will too. God's got his eyes on both daughters here. Their rejection gave you the opportunity at life. If their rejection gave you the opportunity for life, what will their acceptance be, Paul said, but life from the dead? Now that's the shadowing type that we're not teaching on this morning, but I thought I would point it out. What's the price for the second bride? A hundred Philistine foreskins. Now, without being too graphic, can you imagine that those Philistines walked up and donated? No, I don't think so. And the price, just so I'm clear, because I'm not so good in math. I've been in sales a long time, and it's good not to be able to add numbers correctly. I'm teasing. One hundred, right? Well, let's see what happens. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David and his men went out and killed... 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented the full number to the king so that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michael in marriage. Saul gave him the daughter Michael in marriage. But there was a great bloody price that was paid, wasn't there? And the price required was 100, but what was paid? 200. When Jesus purchased you and I, destined to become like Him, one who is like God, we're like Michael in this scenario, there was a price to be paid. It was bloody warfare with the enemy. And Jesus, agonizing over this, sweat drops as if it were blood. In a garden, He was looking for any other way. But when He was convinced it was the Father's will, He went after it 
And not only did he do what was required, he did more than was required. He paid twice the price that had to be paid. He said, well, what do you mean by that? He could have died some other way, friends. He could have had some other easier route, but it had been prophesied. Somebody hung on a cross is cursed, and he needed to show that he was cursed for you. He might could have called on angels for the deliverance of his. That he had more than 12 legions at his disposal could have been some other way. All he had to do was contend with the enemy. But he went as far as you could possibly go because the price for you was great. That ought to make you feel valued. I believe that's what Nick was prophesying about this morning. Jesus' blood was the most precious substance on the planet. Most precious substance on the planet. And it was spent for you. What does that mean about you? If the most valuable thing that I have is this ring and I give it to get Craig a car, what does that tell you I feel about Craig? Pretty darn good, right? Well, the most valuable substance on the planet was spent for you, for your salvation. Now, that's Michael. Michael. She's destined to be a queen. She's destined to be somebody like God. She's called out. She's in love with David. It could have went to the older daughter, but it didn't. It went to her. She didn't deserve it, but because of her love for the king and the king's love for her, a bloody price was paid. And she did good. Did y'all know that Michael did good or did y'all only know about the bad that she did? Michael did good. Flip the page. Go to 1 Samuel 19, verse 11. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window. Now, friends, my wife, my wife is a beautiful, awesome woman, and y'all know that. But can you imagine her letting me down through a window? Eric's kind of a fat boy these days. I don't know if she could do that. This woman had to be committed to a task to be able to let David down through a window, huh? Wouldn't you rather, you know, if Jennifer had to let me down through a window, she'd be on the phone calling to see if Matt could come help. But it was important. She's only been married to him for a short time. Her daddy's the king. I don't know about you, but I know what it's like to be married for a short time and a wife have a difference, a little terror in her heart. She's used to living under daddy's roof, used to doing what daddy says to do, used to things being the way dad said they should be. And now there's this new dictator in her life. I meant husband, loving companion. New dictator in her life. And there's this rift. Well, dad did it this way. And now my husband wants to do it this way. You might be surprised to hear that's the first fight Jennifer and I ever had. Her dad used a certain kind of oil when he changed the oil in the cars. It wasn't the kind of oil that I wanted to use. Very first domestic squabble. Can you imagine what Michael is thinking here? Her dad's going to be mad. He wants to kill this man. But she's been betrothed to him. She's married him. She loves him. He loves her. That commitment is stronger than anything that she had previously. In fact, you might even say she died to the other commitment so she could become something new. She was no longer just the man's daughter. Now she is somebody else's wife. There was a bond that you had once 
when you were in the world. And it was to our Father who was not in heaven. We did what He told us to do when He told us to do it, and all the time we thought it was our own idea. But you died to that old nature. You died to those old ways the moment that you were born again. The moment that you were betrothed and then married to the king, you pledged yourself to be his bride with no other complications in your life. Your job was to be his helpmate, his companion, follow his lead. Make sense? Well, Michael answered that call. She did it. Verse 12, So Michael let David down through a window, and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair on the head. (laughs) She went the whole nine yards. Not only she let him out to escape, then she tried to hide the the tracks. You know, a woman that we often call a woman of faith, somebody in the lineage of Jesus did something very similar here. You remember who she was? Rahab. Rahab hid some spies under flax showing her commitment was with Israel and not with the people she was born to. Her commitment was with the people of God and not with the other people. She made it into Hebrews Hall of Fame for that. Isn't that something? I would say these people are saved, wouldn't you? Rahab made it into the lineage of Christ for telling a lie, motivated by faith. So would you say Michael's on pretty good footing here? She's left her father's household. She's now joined to the king. She's destined to be like God, which is what her name means. She answered the call when the older sister wouldn't answer the call. She's defying the father for the sake of her new husband. That's good ground, don't you think? Well, what happens to Michael? Something happened because she doesn't do good in a few chapters. Something happened. Have you ever met Christians that go up like a Roman candle, man? Excited. It's Jesus this and Jesus that. I got in the car and at the stop sign, Jesus told me to turn right. Then I got to the store and I was trying to decide between a Mr. Good Bar and a Baby Ruth and Jesus told me to get the Baby Ruth. You know, I mean, Jesus is everywhere in their lives when they're first born again, right? One guy told me I got in the car and I turned on the stereo and it was REO Speedwagon. Y'all know who that is, don't you? David, I know you do. And they were singing about Jesus. They weren't singing about Jesus. But Jesus was so big in his life. He was so newly married that he was in the honeymoon stage. Everything in his life had something to do with Jesus. Isn't that a great place to be? Wouldn't you like your honeymoon, especially those of you married, to last decades? Your honeymoon with Jesus is supposed to last decades. So what happens? How do we go from at the stop sign feeling like Jesus told us to turn right or turn left or do this or do that to Jesus having a small and insignificant role in our life, being less important every day. Oh, we still say He's at the top of the list. You look at where you spend time and what motivates your actions. All you've got left is an idol laying in the bed. Husband's no longer there. How does that happen? Y'all think about that for a minute. We may need to take an inventory here soon. In 2 Samuel, starting in verse chapter 6, we have a story. It's a familiar story. You remember David brings the ark into Jerusalem. The presence of God up on Mount Zion. God touches the ark. 
It's ruining the shadowing type, mercy killing. God takes him out. The ark goes and hangs out at another guy's house for a while and the blessings are so big that even though David's scared, he starts to inquire of the priest and said, look, man, how was I supposed to do this? Oh, the glory of God's supposed to be carried on men's shoulders. I'm sorry, we'll get it right this time. Now they're bringing the ark into Jerusalem, doing it right this time. Starting in verse 16. Chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, verse 16. Page 342 if you're in a Thompson chain. As the ark of Yahweh was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. I don't understand. We just read a few moments ago that she loved him. She risked her life for him. She defied her father for him. So how is it now that this woman despises him in her heart? I mean, before she showed the kind of faith that Rahab showed. I mean, the kind that got her in the lineage of Christ. What has changed? She despises him in her heart now. By the way, somebody read verse 23 out loud. Loud, loud. Somebody. Oh, my goodness, they're asleep. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children till the day of her death. There are kinds of people based on their actions that God can bless with fruit. That their lives will be centrifugal, pouring out into other lives, creating an exponential increase in the kingdom of God. It comes from having a certain heart about God, being willing to do certain things no matter the cost. When others are tired, you work. When you don't feel like going, you do it anyway. Because God's heart is in a man that will do what God has told him to do. Acts 13 tells us that. says that's why David was considered to have a heart after God. Rahab did what God told her to do and made it in the lineage of Jesus. This woman starts the same way, exact same way. She's in love with the king of Israel, the new king, the rising star, the one that was not esteemed by anybody else. She's willing to defy her father and be dead to him to please this king, this new husband of hers. She lets him down through a window and deceives her father to be pleasing to this king. But something has happened between 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel so that now when she sees him doing what the king always does, which is worshiping God, doing exactly what God wants him to do, See him dancing in his underwear because it's what was led by God. She despises him in her heart. In fact, her and David have this little exchange later in the chapter, just before what Cassidy read out loud. And he reminded her, hey, it was God who chose me rather than your father to be king. And you think I'll be shamed by these slave girls? I'll be held in honor by them. little correction there. Well, what has happened to her? I think it's the same thing that happens to Christians. You start off in love with Jesus. He's everywhere you turn. He's everywhere you look. Man, you look up at the clouds and you think you see Jesus' face in the clouds. You turn on the crazy Christian television with the purple hair circus going on and they talk to you and it's like they're speaking to you. Was this just a phenomenon for new Christians? 
Is it just that they haven't learned to be as wise as you are? What is it? Christians pick up other interests in their lives as time goes on. You sell everything that you have. Matthew 13, 48 tells us like you were going out to find a pearl of great price. You sell everything that you have just to obtain it. That's salvation. You realize David paid or Jesus paid a bloody price for you and you'll do anything just to be with Jesus. You'll walk out on your mother, father, sister, daughter, whatever it is, to go be with Jesus. No matter what the cost, you will do it, right? That's how you get saved. You count the cost. You say, everything's dead to me. I'm alive to Jesus, just like Michael did. But somewhere along the way, you begin to pick up things that you had laid down earlier. And all of a sudden, there are competing interests with the king in your life. And at first, it seems innocent. I'd have a nice car, doesn't he? Makes me sell them every time I get them. But anyway, wants me to have a nice car, doesn't he? I mean, God wants me to provide for my family. Judah needs Jabot jeans. They don't even make those anymore probably. But when I was a kid, that's what I was asking my parents for was Jabot jeans. Right? And all of a sudden, you begin to acquire things in your life. And before you know it, you have built an idol in your life that competes with Jesus where you had sold everything before, willing to risk it all. Now all of a sudden you have something, you've got a little skin in the game you're not supposed to have. So where? God didn't call me to drive a Volkswagen and be in a burlap sack. I agree, He probably didn't. But you've got to be willing to. You've got to be willing to. He didn't promise you you would be well-rested, rich, well-fed, full of friends, all of those. He didn't promise any of that. You have to be willing to do without it all than you were the day you got saved. Do you know why? The sentence was hanging over your head. You knew the consequence of not going with the king. But now that the sentence is not hanging over your head, the fear of God is dissipating from your life, you have competing interest in your life. Now all of a sudden you care what your co-worker thinks. Now all of a sudden you care what your neighbor thinks. Now all of a sudden the respect of your peers is something that is important to you. Whereas before, look man, I don't care if I'm naked and burned, sins from the fire, just get me in. This is the difference between many Christians who have been in this walk 20 years and the guy two months. There's a couple reactions, too, when you see the guy in two months. What do you say? Oh, just give it some time, man. It'll wear off. That's the worst advice you could ever give anybody. Don't let me hear you say it. We'll have immediate confrontation. Everybody told me it'll wear off. It'll wear off. I said, oh, his stepdaddy got to him. That's what they told me. It'll wear off. That's the worst advice you could give somebody because it's never supposed to wear off. Never supposed to wear off. You are supposed to be newly in love with Jesus all of the time. Let's look at, see if I made this up about Michael. Go to uh, 2 Samuel 3. Back a couple pages here. She was so in love with Jesus. She could have sang, in love, in love, I'm so in love with you. What happened? Well, there was warfare in the kingdom. 2 Samuel 3. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. Friends, when the warfare goes on in your life a long time, your commitment to Jesus versus your commitment to the prince of the power of the air, 
that war is raging in you. Paul talked about it in Romans 7. The good that you know to do, but lack the strength to do. That battle, when it rages a long time, you have to be careful. It is easy to make compromise. It's easy to pick up loves in your life that are not supposed to be there. The war between the house of Saul and David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. That's exactly what's supposed to happen. The longer that Bobby battles with his flesh, the stronger his spirit's supposed to get and the weaker his flesh is supposed to get. That's the way God designed it. That's called sanctification. You're justified the moment you're saved. Then you begin the process of sanctification. In other words, God caught the fish. Now it's time to clean it so that at the end of the day He will have something worth eating. That's what's supposed to happen for Christians. The problem is once you find out you're justified, you forget about being sanctified. Friends, don't be fooled. God will not be mocked. Drunkards, idolaters, immorality, you will not inherit the kingdom. The Scripture says that point blank, plain as day. I know churches teach it. We don't because the Bible doesn't. You do not have a certificate engraved in stone that guarantees your eternal destiny. That's a lie. That's a lie meant to make you change the grace of God into a license for immorality. What you have is a pledge that says as long as the faith that saved you remains in you and grows stronger, then you will be delivered or saved. The Bible is full of people that never reach their destiny. Michael was destined to be in love with David. She was destined to be his wife, destined to do well, and destined to bear children for the king. We're going to take an inventory here in just a minute. You're going to find out that all of David's wives bore children for him except one, and there's a reason. God will not bless a heart that is divided and has begun to despise His ways. That charismatic worship just makes me uncomfortable. Well, decide how comfortable you are with the Spirit of God. Decide. Because you're going to have to choose Him, even before men, or choose not to. And if you choose not to, that's just fine with me. It's fine with God. Just don't confuse us by trying to stand in the middle. That's the guy that gets vomited out. God never begged anybody to serve Him. He simply had His prophet say, pick a side and get on it. Because He's worthy of being followed without compulsion. He doesn't have to sell you anything. I work for companies that hire me to compel people to use their products. In an ideal world, the product would be so good, it would require no compulsion. Well, Jesus is the ideal. I'm not trying to compel anybody to get saved or live right. My job, what I'm compelled to do, is tell you the truth. What you do with it, it hurts me, but it really makes no difference in the end. I'm going to do what He told me to do. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, the son of Hinoam, of Jezreel. His second son, Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal, of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Micaiah, daughter of Talmai, king of Jeshur. 
the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, the fifth, Sheptiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithream, the son of David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. There's somebody conspicuously gone, not mentioned, because she had no children. By the way, if you're counting, there's a few not mentioned here. Not encountered Bathsheba yet, who becomes his wife. As David began to take an inventory of his wife, life, life, and wives, when you start to count them, you don't get five, which is what somebody told us here recently. You know what you get? Seven. Some would say that's a perfect number of wives. Not me, but some would say that. Seven's the number of perfection in the Bible. David had seven wives, all who bore him children even Bathsheba, except one. Why? We better look. It's important. You were saved for a purpose. God did not just save you to give you fire insurance. In fact, you've only received a pledge and a down payment of salvation. The only thing that should make you feel secure, the only thing, according to Romans 8, is His Spirit in you bearing witness that you're in right standing with Him. If that spirit's not there bearing witness, I won't dare to take his place to try to make you feel good about yourself. You may not need to feel good about yourself. You may need to run and wash. A lot of times in my life that feeling's come and I've had to run and wash in the water of the Word. and say, Jesus, You've saved me. You've cleaned me. You've sprinkled me with Your blood and made me new. And I have soiled it. And I have fouled it up. And I need to start again. The good news is He'll let you do that. But it requires a certain kind of heart, not one that despises Him and wants to cling to other things. wonder what happened to this woman. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position. It's funny how the kingdom of the world does that. You work with people that don't really care about what's right and wrong. They just care about how to make themselves look a little better. The program doesn't need to work. They gave you an Excel spreadsheet and told you to put the world on this thing. It doesn't need to work. That's not important. What's important is that I designed it and I want my name out there. Abner was strengthening his own position. Now Saul had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Ai. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said and answered him, Am I a dog's head? Now, I don't know, but I'm just assuming that has got to be a Hebrew idiom for something. I, I have to think that Ishbosheth could come up with better accusation and that Abner could come back with a better response than Am I a dog's head? So, in Hebrew, that probably means something very bad. It's kind of like in German, the mother of all curse words is to call somebody a pig dog. Now, in English, that just doesn't translate right, does it? doesn't have the desired effect. But if you say that in German, you've said something very, very bad. I know, it's the only German words I know, unfortunately. <laughs> a good missionary taught me that. Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said and said, and he answered him, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father, Saul, and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you accuse me of an offense involving a woman. 
May God deal with Abner. Bid ever so severely if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul to establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. What's happened here? Abner's got upset. He's got offended. He's decided to switch teams. He suddenly realized in a moment of accusation and guilt what God said to David is true. The kingdom will be transferred from Saul to David. Friends, this kingdom of the world belongs to a prince of the power of the air. And Jesus has taken it back. It is being transferred from Saul to David. The easy route for Jesus or David in the scenario has been when the devil offered it to him in the desert to simply bow down and worship him. Then the kingdoms that had been given to him could have been given to Jesus. But he didn't take the easy route. He didn't want to pay a hundred Philistine foreskins. He wanted to pay two hundred because he thought we were worth it. Now, Abner's had a change of heart. He's repented. It was wrong for him to be serving Saul the way that he was. So he's turned his back on Saul. And now he's going to run to help David and fulfill God's commands. Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is it? Make an agreement. Isn't it funny that's always been the argument in Israel? The only deed of property on the planet that God has given to specific people. And the argument today still is, whose land is it? Tuesday are elections in Israel. Our Tuesday. The front runner, Olmert, by some standards, is considered a liberal. Netanyahu is running, but not incredibly popular there. 20% of the electorate is still undecided in Israel. Did you know that the Word gives you an imperial command? to pray for Israel without ceasing, to pray for peace in Jerusalem. Probably never been a more important time than right now for you to be praying for Israel. I won't tell you to do it because I think it's wrong, but you might even consider fasting and praying for Israel on some given time period because the person who is elected there and the stand that he takes against Hamas very well may determine when our next major global war is. It's just a thought. As Christians, the spirit inside you ought to tell you when something's important. And mine's been going off like alarms. But that's not what we're preaching about, is it? Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word. said, whose land is it anyway? Make an agreement with me and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Good, said David, I'll make an agreement with you. But I demand one thing of you. By the way, do you know who Abner was? Like we know Nick is chief justice. Nicholas Slaughter. I'm teasing. That's a new position he's gotten at the college. They have a student government, and he's the chief justice there. Do you know who Abner was in Saul's cabinet? He's the warlord. He's the Donald Rumsfeld. Dick Cheney's got a gun. I'm sorry. He's Donald Rumsfeld there. And now he's making an agreement with the other party. Right? Got a chance to defect here. Good, said David. I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michael, daughter of Saul, when you come to me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife, Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of 100 Philistine foreskins. 
So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband, Paltiel, son of Laish. I want you to understand this. She was in Saul's household. She died to Saul. Became alive to David. Was his wife legally, lawfully. By the way, if you think betrothed here just means pledged to be married, because that does mean that, consider she was in David's room with him when he escaped down a window. Sounds like more than just pledged to be married, doesn't it? Might even be biblical marriage. Right? Now, she's left David because of her father. 1 Samuel 25:44 said, Saul was angry with David and gave her to another man. I don't know about you. I love Fred Hull. He's my father-in-law but I don't think I'd let him give Jennifer to another man. And if he was in a position of power to cause that to happen and I couldn't stop it, I don't think I'd allow anybody in his family in my presence until they showed up with my wife. That's exactly what David's doing here. I want you to get this. David paid a bloody price for her. It was a difficult thing to do. Much warfare. He loved her and she loved him, but something else had come into her life. It had competed with his interest, a love for the world that she came from, and a love for a new husband that she's now married to. She's given a part of her heart and self to. Now there's going to have to be an awful tearing for her to be married to David again. This is 2 Samuel 3. What chapter did we see her stand in? 2 Samuel 6. What happened? Why does she despise David in her heart? You only have so many pieces of your heart to give, friends. And it all belonged to David. And then it was torn in half to be given to Paul Teal. Now it's being torn away again from Paul Teal trying to go back to David. And it's left her troubled and confused. You want to know why Christians don't do well sometimes when the honeymoon is over? They have pledged their heart to too many things. Too many things that are outside of God's will for their life. In addition to being a success in the kingdom, they want to be a success in the world. In addition to earning the favor of Jesus, they also need to earn the favor of their relatives. In addition to earning the favor of the king, they also need to be well-rested, well-fed, and well-compensated. As those things creep in our heart, it causes a tearing. All of you are supposed to belong to Jesus. No part, no stone left unturned. And when you tear away a little piece and say, Jesus and also money, and then tear away another piece and say, Jesus and also prestige. And tear away another little piece and say, Jesus and also the lust of the eye. And tear away another little piece and say, Jesus and also the lust of the flesh. You only have so many pieces to give in your divided heart. It's something God cannot bless with fruit, which is children. Now, who are you tempted to feel sorry for here? Michael? She didn't have to go. You already saw she defied her father once. God spared her. Who are you tempted to feel sorry for here? David? Six other wives. He wasn't hurting. I really do feel sorry for David. But who were you tempted to feel sorry for? How about this poor Shmo? I've got to quit saying Shmo. That's a nickname for Solomon in Israel. It's not actually not Shmo. It's Shlomo. But they're so close. Who are you tempted to feel sorry for? Paul Deal. He gets a wife. He loves her. They're having a good time. Got a little garden going. 
wham on the stove, grab some new wine, whatever that is. We'll take a survey afterwards. New wine. They're excited, right? And all of a sudden, Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband, Paul Teal, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her weeping behind her all the way to Bethurim. Then Abner said to him, Go back home. So he went back home. I don't need to read the rest, but there is peace in the kingdom. Who are you tempted to feel sorry for? Paul Teal. There's a problem with that, though. Paul Teal is not the woman's husband. Who is? David. It is so funny how your heart gets divided. How you've pledged yourself to Jesus, but as time goes on, it hurts to have to follow Jesus because you've given a little piece of yourself to something else. Some dream that is your dream and not His dream. Some desire that is your desire and not His desire. And it's following behind you as you're trying to repent and turn and follow Jesus. And it's weeping, saying, come back, we were in love. Come back, I need you. You remember how much time you invested in me. And there is only one right answer. Go back home. Get back in hell where you belong. Satan always has in mind the things of men. And you have to tell him, get behind me. Nothing will dissuade me from doing the will of God no matter what the cost. You remember the old Baptist song, Though none go with me, I still will follow? If only it were true when people sang it. But it's so often not. We say, if only I can carry as much as I want along the way, then I'll follow. The problem with this narrow way is it keeps getting more and more and more narrow. And some of your flesh has got to be torn off just to get through the narrow way. It's easy at first because you remember what's on the other side. You remember the hurt that the world caused you. But the longer you've been walking in the narrow way, the better you've been doing, it's easy to forget the garbage and refuse that you've come from and start counting the cost along the way, something that was supposed to be over and done with a long time ago. And all of a sudden you have a Paul Teal in your life. David was taking inventory as he's about to become king of Israel and he starts going through those who were pledged to him. And you know how he counted them? How did David know who was pledged to him as far as his wives? How did they get mentioned in the list? The fruit they bore. Their children. Well, I got this wife who gave me this son. I got this wife who gave me this son. This wife who gave me this son. Who was not mentioned? She gave no fruit, so Michael was not mentioned. And he said, by the way, I still love her. She's in another man's bed right now. She's not produced the fruit she was supposed to produce because of a divided loyalty with her father and with this other man. But I still love her. Don't you come back in my presence without bringing her. That's Jesus' heart for the one. Leaving the 99, going after the one. You have, may have played the Michael role destined to be like God and found yourself in an affair with somebody besides Jesus. Loving things you're not supposed to love in a place you're not supposed to be in. Acting in a way that you're not supposed to act. I don't know about you, but I found myself at times in places I didn't want to be. Look back and say, you know, this is not God's will for my life. How did this happen? Somebody put a bag over my head and beat me or something. 
because I don't want to be here and this is where I am. To get back in the King's presence, it requires one thing, an undivided heart. One thing. You cannot serve two masters. You will love one and hate the other. Christians, sometimes your lives are not doing well because you're trying to maintain more than one master. Jesus, master of my life, everywhere except the Internet. Jesus, master of my life, everywhere except HBO. Jesus, master of my life, everywhere but the checkbook. Jesus, master of my life, everywhere except the words I speak to my spouse. Jesus, master of my life, everywhere but the workplace. We all know you can't really be a Christian in the workplace. It just doesn't work, right? Won't if you won't stand up and be a real Christian. Well, I can't do that. I need the job. I need the money. I can't be a success doing what I'm doing and be a Christian. You can't be a success without being a Christian in the kingdom, and that's the only thing that really matters. Success in the world's eyes and success in God's eyes are drastically different things. But what am I going to do? How am I going to eat? I do things the way the Bible says to do it. It won't work. Seek first the kingdom. Everything else will be added to you. But it hurts. It leaves a little flesh on the table. Do it anyway. A bloody price was paid for you. How dare us not be willing to be a little defamed, a little humiliated, or have to put a little trust in God to make it work out. That's what faith is. Well, I have faith. Not if you don't have trust in Him. Well, how do you know if you trust Him? Your actions will show that and you'll bear fruit. He took an inventory and saw somebody is missing. He said, don't you come back in my presence. I don't care how repentant you are, Abner. Don't you come back in my presence until you've righted this wrong. Jesus will fight for you. He will do what it takes to get you back in His presence. Then it's up to you. The backslider returns. But now, because of this divided heart, she's decided she no longer likes the king's ways. You know when you hear this in Christians? When I was in the world, I had all the money I needed. When I was in the world, I never had a problem finding a date. Oh, when I was in the world, I'd have knocked that guy out. Yeah, if you love it so much, go live there. It did so well for you the first time. Got you broken, hurt, body, mind, spirit, shattered. You want some more of that? Keep flirting with Paul Peel in your life. Friends, we have to hate sin. You have to. You have to remember its consequences. God is not some vicious God with a stick beating you for everything that's fun in your life. He only tells you to avoid something that will hurt you. Sometimes Christians have enjoyed the blessings of God to the point where they've forgotten the way sin hurts you and hurts those that are around you. 2 Corinthians 11.2 Paul says, I pledged you to but one husband. Makes you think that Paul might have known this Scripture. I pledged you to but one husband. When you got saved, you got saved for one husband. One. Don't let anything else creep in your life. Just like an affair happens, some innocent flirtation, some conversation, some entertained thoughts, then before long, a lunch date. Then an extended lunch date. However it happens, 
starts by entertaining some thoughts you're not supposed to have. Little innocent flirtations. Your heart gets divided in other ways the exact same way. Little curiosity. Little flirtation with not doing what God told you to do. And before long, you've got a full-blown love affair with something God doesn't want in your life and that will ultimately tear your heart in half. Joshua 24:15. Joshua says, Hey, look. You need to think about this. If you're able to serve God, good. If you're not able to serve God, that's okay. But as for me and my household, we'll serve the Lord. That's around 1500 B.C. Around 900 B.C., Elijah stands up. Elijah's 1 Kings 18. He's having to talk to Israel who's already pledged many times to serve the Lord. Hey, how long will you waver between two opinions? If God is God, serve Him. If Baal is God, go serve Him. God is not begging you to get this right. You've got the wrong perspective if that's your perspective. You have the opportunity now to get it right. There'll be a time it's too late. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the time to take your stand. Tell Pautil to go back home. Quit wavering between two love affairs and do the good that God's called you to do. Then you'll enjoy His favor. You'll bear fruit. You'll be written about in the books of heaven like all of the other that have been pledged to Him. Romans 6, 16. Let's go ahead and read that one. We'll close with it. It's amazing. The Word tells us to be aware of the devil's schemes. He will guilt you into doing something God has not told you to do. He will threaten you into it. He'll use the desire for gain and greed to get you to do it. He'll use the fear of loss to get you to do it. He will travel behind you every waking moment, weeping and crying and begging you to do it. One time when I was in the car business, I saw a drug addict who needed to make a sale because he needed to get a fix literally grabbed someone's leg on the ground and asked them not to leave because he was trying to sell them a car. I thought, my goodness, I don't know if I've ever wanted anything that bad. I do want Jesus that bad. But I don't want anything else in my life that occupies that kind of desire. Not anywhere. Anybody ever see the movie Heat? Of course not. Y'all are all Christians. You wouldn't watch a show like that. But if you had ever seen the movie Heat, maybe way back when you were lost, right? I know it just came out like 10 years ago and you've been saved 30 years, but maybe somebody told you about the movie Heat. The whole premise of this movie Heat is that Robert De Niro, who is just this phenomenal bank robber, right? So all he's ever wanted to be, and Al Pacino, who's a phenomenal cop, are at odds with one another because Al Pacino is trying to maintain a life and still be a cop. And the problem is he keeps getting divorces, he keeps seeing his kids hurt because he's trying to maintain two worlds that he can't. De Niro, however, says he won't have anything in his life that he can't walk away from in three seconds. And that's how he's so good at what he does. Of course, in the end, he gets caught. Why? He fell in love with a woman and he couldn't walk away with her. Couldn't walk away from her in three seconds. Now, I don't want to lift up a bank robber as the hero in our story. But if there's anything in your life that you can't turn away from for Jesus that makes, in the light of your love for Him, you have to hate everything else. That's what those Scriptures mean. 
You're not worthy of the kingdom of God if not. And I didn't say that. Jesus is the one who said it. Look how Romans 6 puts it. Don't you know, 6.16, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey Him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Friends, you're going to serve somebody. You can serve sin. That's a Dylan song, isn't it? You can serve sin and end up in death. And I won't like that, and God won't like it, but we're not going to beg you not to do it. Or you can be obedient, serving God, and it will lead you into righteousness and an abundant and full life that has blessed people for more than 2,000 years, although they've been persecuted by the rest of the world. Men so happy they were willing to give their very life for the faith they professed. In the light of Paul's sacrifice, in the light of Jesus' sacrifice, in the light of Peter's sacrifice, or how about Isaiah, sawed in two, or Jeremiah, thrown in a pit, or Daniel, burned, thrown with lions, you know, in the light of their sacrifice, what is Jesus asking you to part with that is so hard to part with? Paul Peel's got a different name in every person's life, but I promise you he's there. Take an inventory of your life and see what area of your life is not bearing fruit. If there's an area of your life that is not bearing fruit, you need to get the competing interest out and put God first. This is not just a good sermon, friends. This is not just some way to entertain you today. I'm talking to you about the path of life. It's the only way to real happiness. It's all there is. There is no more. This is the gospel. Many different ways it's said. It's the story portrays itself over and over and over. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the only way to be successful in the kingdom. I'm encouraging you to take an inventory and get this right. Stand up. Let's pray.